Sarah, have you ever changed careers? Like made a significant career change? Does it count if it's in the same field? Um, I don't know. Yeah, I think so. If if you have, you know, vastly different uh, responsibilities or something like that, even if it's in the same field, I think that that still counts as a career change. Well, Ethan, I would have to say no. Unless you count when I worked at a video rental and then got into IT. That was a big career change. Uh, yeah, that's fair. But you probably never thought of video rental as like a career, right? Like that was probably, I assume, just like a job to have uh, at the time. You don't know my life. But also, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah it was just it was my first job. Oh, that's fun. I, um, I always wanted, like, when I was, you know, in, like, high school and early college and was like, I just need a part-time job, uh, to get some money and stuff. I, I always, there was, like, a local video store that I always was, like, of the small local places where I could pick up something like that, that would probably be where I would want to work at. Uh, but I never actually got hired there. I ended up uh, waiting tables instead. Ooh, yeah, yeah. This was um, this was such a small video rental store in a small town that we had very few customers. And uh, this one guy came in and, and asked how much cash was in the register, which at the time was not a weird question to me. But uh, yeah. Oh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just that turned out fine, I think. Uh, there was not much cash in the register, by the way. And <laughs> it had one of those, oh, I forget what the type of paper's called. One of those printers with the perforated paper on each oh, side. Oh, yeah. 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 That's how we did everything. That's fun. Anyway, what are we talking about? <laughs> We're talking about my, my, my lead in there was meant to, you know, discuss how, uh, making a major career change can be a really stressful and tumultuous time in someone's life. I guess instead of talking about how I didn't work at a video store, I could have talked about the career changes I've done because I get a new, vastly different job every three years. Uh, so, but <laughs> at any rate, <laughs> yeah, we're talking about a movie that's all about that. We're talking about Satoshi Kone's Perfect Blue. I said that uh, way more enthusiastically than is maybe warranted for, by <laughs> yeah. this topic. We should probably, if you haven't seen Perfect Blue, it's very good and I would recommend watching it. But there is a lot of really heavy stuff. So twisted. we should, yeah, we should, we should get, uh, get some, some content warnings out real quick about that. It's, pretty violent first of all there are depictions of sexual assault uh it deals really heavily with like mental illness and like 
psychosis. Yeah. And maybe not even in the most accurate of ways. I'm not entirely sure. But yeah. Right. And there's there's a bit of gore, especially like towards the end. So be, you know, be forewarned about that stuff. And obviously we're going to be talking about all of that stuff in the course of this episode. So if that doesn't sound like a pleasant listening experience, uh, then now might be a good time to duck out. Still here? Cool. Oh, we should also throw in uh, like exploitation of women generally, especially by like uh, the entertainment industry. That's like a pretty, pretty major theme of the film as well. Yeah. Commentary on the idol industry in Japan, for sure, among other social issues. Yeah. And like the television industry. And yeah, it's. uh... Yeah. So, yes, Perfect Blue is is an anime film by Satoshi Kon who is, uh, I would say, pretty highly respected director in that field. He doesn't have a super deep resume, mostly because he sadly passed away very young. I didn't realize that. Yeah, he, I I believe it was cancer of some kind. Of course it was. Yeah, I... Remember, I, I read after the first time I watched this, or maybe when I watched Paranoia Agent, I read some stuff from around some retrospectives about him and some articles about, you know, what he was like towards the end of his life. And he he wrote like this very beautiful letter uh, to be read after his death about just kind of him like reflecting on his life and knowing that his cancer was terminal and stuff. And um, I don't remember what the phrase is, but there he, he signed off with some phrase that I guess is very, very common in Japanese like business culture. Like you, it's a thing that you often say like as you're leaving the office and mm. it's also common with like animation studios that essentially means like, hey, I'm going to head out. Sorry that you have to stay and work like that kind of thing. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, that was <laughs> <is> a boss. <laughs> yeah, he he seemed like a very cool guy. And I haven't watched all of his stuff. I definitely want to. I've seen Perfect Blue and Paranoia Agent, and I really, really, really like both of those. And I've heard nothing but good things about paprika and tokyo godfathers uh no i'm surprised you haven't seen it yet i haven't seen it either but that's one of i assume his more like well-known works i would yeah i think that's probably the one that he's most well known for uh to my knowledge he only did four films which are tokyo godfathers paprika um perfect blue and millennium actress and then I'm sure he probably worked on other anime series, but Paranoia Agent is the only one that I know of that he like directed. Hmm. But I could definitely be wrong about that. Well, we're starting in the right place because Perfect Blue was the oldest of his works. What did you think of this movie, generally speaking? 
Oh boy. <clears throat> I thought it got its point across in a very tangled mind fucking kind of way. It has an animation style that I just don't enjoy or or like the the style of characters, the way they're drawn. And oh man, the creepy guy is really creepy. <laughs> Me mania? Yeah, I did not enjoy yeah. that. But I, I think I think there's a powerful story there. Yeah, but it was a rough a rough ride. <laughs> uh I have a quick question. Why do you think it is called Perfect Blue? I actually don't know, other than it's based on another work, I assume a book or a light novel. Yes. Yeah, so I didn't realize that until doing like a little bit of research this time, because uh, I've, I've watched this before. And I was thinking after rewatching it for this to talk about it on this episode, I was thinking like, I don't actually know why it's called that. And so I Googled, you know, why is Perfect Blue called Perfect Blue or whatever. And I saw like the first handful of articles were these deep you know, really picking apart, like, what does, you know, blue blue in Japanese culture represents femininity and all this stuff. And then I read another article that was like, yeah, a lot of people seem to have this weird bullshit <laughs> idea about what perfect blue means. And they say that blue is like represents femininity in Japan. It doesn't. Um, Perfect Blue is called that because it's based on a book called Perfect Blue. And when asked in an interview about the title, Satoshi Kone said basically that he has no idea why it's called that because like the novel came out. And then it was the author of the novel wrote a script for a live action adaptation of the film. Ooh, no, I like the idea of that. And then the studio eventually decided, eh, we're not going to do live action. We're going to do animation. Yeah. And then they brought on Satoshi Kon as director and he really heavily rewrote the script. And so his response to being asked, like, why is it called Perfect Blue? Which is like, oh, I don't really know. I like... I really fucking hacked up that script. It's like a lot different than the book, and I'm not really sure why the book is called that. So, I don't know. <laughs> uh, interesting. Well, and and the full title is Perfect Blue Full Metamorphosis of the book. Uh, That's a movie. I'm like, butterfly wings can be blue. That's true. Well, but I still don't know. Uh, <laughs> so, so, ultimately... We just don't know. Maybe the original author knew. I guess, we'll but he to took that secret now. to his grave. Oh, is he dead too? I have no idea. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, the book was written like thirty years ago, so maybe. I'm sorry to the author of Perfect Blue if you are dead, and I'm making light of it. It's not very nice of me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So yeah, where do we go from here? <laughs> So, okay. So Perfect Blue, um, again, if people uh, listening haven't haven't watched, uh, I would recommend it. I think it's I think it's a real trip, but it is about 
a woman named Mima Kirigoe, I think is her full name, who is an idol. Uh, so like a pop singer in Japan, part of a girl group of pop singers. And she has decided to transition away from being an idol and become a uh, an actress instead. And the film is about her attempting to make that transition. She lands a role in kind of like a prestige drama television series. And it's about her kind of trying to break into that acting industry and shed the public perception of her that she has from her time as an idol and about how her fandom reacts to this change and yeah um things don't go super well <laughs> for her <laughs> in in all sorts of bizarre ways <laughs> yeah like more than you would expect yeah but isn't that I mean, that's super relatable, even in even in our Western culture. We don't necessarily have that type of pop idol group, but we do have, you know, like the young Disney stars and the young the young singers uh, like Miley Cyrus, where, I mean, she had to try so hard to change her image. There's the Wrecking Ball music video. The parallels are striking. Yeah. <laughs> Miley Cyrus was was exactly the example I was thinking of as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, much like Miley Cyrus, Mima does ultimately get a happy ending, but it definitely is pretty traumatic getting there. I was I was honestly very surprised that it ended in a in a satisfying way. <laughs> Like, I thought for sure that Mima was either going to end up a broken, broken soul or dead. I think, I think that the original English dub or something like that, or a dub by some other company or something, did a, like, last minute twist where when she gets into the car at the end and says, like, I'm really Mima or whatever, it, they have Rumi's voice actress deliver that line oh. as, like, a, oh, and then everybody was mad and was like, that's not how, that's, stop it. Yeah. <laughs> Fix it. Do it right. Terrible. One of my, and now I'm I'm going to be the one who's going on tangents this time. <laughs> one of my favorite things is when Miyazaki from Studio Ghibli sent, uh, I think it was Spirited Away, ooh, or Princess Mononoke, one of those, Princess Mononoke, I'm pretty sure, uh, sent that over to be, uh, to be localized in the West, and he sent a katana with it and a note that said, no cuts, because previously <laughs> we fucked up Nausicaa. We like completely <laughs> fucked up Nausicaa and he was not happy so yeah anyway <laughs> that's awesome no roomy <laughs> uh but yeah so so one of the reasons I thought of this as a potential topic for discussion was we had just recorded the episode about Spider-Man 2 being woke and 
One of the things that we briefly talked about in that episode was the backlash, I guess, against the actress who Mary Jane is modeled after. And it just got me thinking about the feeling of ownership that fandom seems to feel entitled to at, at this stage in pop culture. And Perfect Blue deals with that in an interesting way, I think. Because so much of the story is about not just what Mima is feeling and how she's processing this change in her life, but how the public is reacting to it. Mm -hmm. The most obvious facet of that, obviously, being like she has a stalker, uh, Mimania, who is... A freak. <laughs> yeah, just a real fucking creep who cannot handle this change. And obviously, as we learn late in the film, he's kind of being puppeted by this other character who also feels this sense of ownership over Mima and her career. I, I wrote uh, creepy guy, a red herring question mark, and later put the word nope next to it. But he kind of was in a way. Yeah, a little bit. Kind of. I thought maybe he was like the guy who looks like a creep who unfortunately just kind of has that look about him. But turns out he actually just, you know, was okay. Nope. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he is definitely a monster, but there is a little bit more to it than that. Um, that's kind of the most obvious, you know, facet of that theme. But there's also a group of recurring characters. I think it's like three, two or three guys. They're at her concert in the beginning. And then we sort of check in with them a few times throughout the film as they also like react to her shift in career and they're not obsessive in the way that me mania is but they're still kind of gross yeah because early on like they're supposedly like big fans of cham right that's the idol group that she's part of yeah and they talk about you know being fans of hers in particular and then as soon as she's out of the band, like the very next time we see them, they're reading tabloids about it or whatever. And they're like, well, who cares? Like, she always sucked anyway. And like the, you know, this other girl who's still in the band is like way cuter and mm -hmm. stuff. And they like really quickly turn on her. Um, I don't remember if it's those characters or not, but later on, there's... Uh, a point where we hear some background characters like talking about Mima and mentioning that they tried to stop her in the supermarket and talk to her and she brushed them off, which like we as the audience know that by this point, Mima is in like a really bad place mentally. Yeah. Um, but they're like, oh, she's all stuck up and snooty now. Like, you know, I guess that's what happens when you abandon your fans and try to cash in as an actor or whatever. <laughs> yeah, they, man, they really intersperse the movie with a lot of that commentary, sometimes pretty subtly and other times just like very in your face. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely 
I I like how much of it is just sort of peppered in when like the main action that we're following might be like me mania doing some creepy plot relevant shit, but like you can hear these other people kind of talking in the background or, you know, Mima looking at like the Mima's room forum and seeing like how people are reacting to that or whatever. So we get these like these little bits about that sort of peppered in. Sometimes it is just sort of like cut to these three guys and they're talking about the thing. <laughs> yeah. And that's just what the scene is. But yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of like little moments as well um, that I I think it's really interesting that the film takes the time to examine that perspective, because I think it's I think it's an interesting commentary on how like we as a society absorb pop culture and like how we sort of treat these figures, the celebrities and stuff. And I think, you know, one of the kind of understated messages of the movie is like, hey, like those are still people. Allegedly. <laughs> right. No, yeah. It's, uh... At least most of them are. <laughs> it's a good message. What's particularly sad as an observation is that movie came out in 1997. Mm-hmm. And it's even taking place in Japan, a different country from where we consume our media. And it's still a fucking problem. <laughs> yeah. Probably more so with how the internet has taken over. Yeah, for sure. It, it's such an interesting... It's so funny from like a modern perspective that... Because of the time that this is set, and I've talked before I, on this podcast, I think about, I think one of the reasons I like this movie as much as I do is that I have this really deep, like, 90s nostalgia. I have this real affection for how, what media was like at that time. Like, the weird, like, there's not really internet yet, but there kind of is. And, like, cell phones are a new enough thing that it's, you know like suspicious that billy has one in scream but like simultaneously not suspicious enough for it to be like Mm. you know totally damning and stuff like that so one of the things that i think is really funny about this movie is when mima first learns that there's this online forum called mima's room that's like about her she's basically like i don't what is a website (laughs) Like, I don't know what that is. And it's her, like, older, like, uh, agent or whatever, or manager, who has to be like, okay, well, like, it's a it's a thing on a computer. Like, do you have a computer? And she's like, no. Why would I need a computer? Or whatever. <laughs> like, um, so it, it really kind of shows its age in that regard. But at the same time, yeah, it's like, it feels just as relevant, if not more so, with how media is consumed today. Oh, yeah. At, at the speed of light. They're not that fast. That's pretty fast. But <laughs> news travels so quickly in all these online circles. And it's hard to escape. Like, even as someone who's not really into the pop culture gossip and what's going on, you can just be scrolling Reddit and, up oh, here's some random subreddit I have to block because I don't care. Mm-hmm. I I can still remember like I don't know I've never 
I'm kind of in the same boat. It's like I I never really cared about celebrity gossip stuff. Like, I guess I pay more attention to it now than I did when I was younger, but not in like a gossip way, just in like a, oh, like this actor that I like got cast in something new or like I follow it in so far as like, you know, when like all the, the stuff happened with Jonathan Majors, I was like, oh, it sucks that he sucks because I liked his performances that I'd seen. Right. But like, I don't go deeper than that. I always think back to in terms of how much of a hold some that has on like some people's lives and like how into like celebrity gossip people are. I always think back to a conversation I had in high school with this girl who was soliloquizing one day about how like important celebrities were or something to that effect, like how how much of an impact their lives had on our lives or something. And I was like, I don't I don't know what you're talking about. And she was like, well, how do you decide like what magazines you buy and stuff like that? It's who's it's like what gossip is on the cover. And I was like, I don't I don't buy celebrity gossip magazines. And she was just like, what are you talking about? I <laughs> like, know what shoes to buy. <laughs> yeah, like some people are so like hooked into that stuff in a way that I just don't understand. Which is uh, okay. I'm this is not a topic we really have to get into, but that power is or can be politically empowering or politically devastating. And I kind of wish there was more of that because of their huge influence. Mm-hmm. Like, have you seen the Taylor Swift conspiracies? Mm-hmm. That she's like a CIA plant and stuff like that. And sacrificed, blood sacrificed a child or something. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Well, of course. Obviously, conspiracy. Obviously, we don't believe that. But Right. No, yeah. <laughs> but every... No conspiracy is complete until it's reached the blood libel stage. Right, right. Uh, so again, people just going wild. <laughs> mm-hmm. Gross. Oh, and the, the nude deepfakes. Deepfakes. Oh. Those have been around for a while, but I guess they're cropping up again. Yeah. Well, and I mean, all that shit was, you know, predated by just like, you know, leaks and all that stuff. And it's... The world is a nightmarish place, I think, is what we're getting at. It really is. But anyway, back to Perfect Blue, which is a very peaceful, loving movie. <laughs> uh, one might even call it perfect. <laughs> um. <laughs> this this recording room is called That Wasn't Perfect At All. <laughs> <laughs> I I also think, in addition to examining like the public perception of Mima... So when we were discussing, talking about this for an episode, and I was giving my pitch of, you know, here's why I think this would maybe be a good topic for us to tackle. I think I phrased it as like, this movie is all about perception. It's about how the public perceives Mima. It's about how she's perceived professionally. Mm -hmm. And it's about her own self-perception. Which is a hot mess. Yes. And I, I think the least interesting, like the thing with the least meat on its bones, probably, is the professional aspect 
just because I, I personally find that less interesting than the public perception stuff that we've just talked about. And obviously the self-perception stuff is much more central to the film. But I do think that the way this movie portrays the entertainment industry is really interesting and actually surprisingly nuanced. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's very easy for media that is trying to tackle that topic to just go full on like the entertainment industry is evil and it will use you and destroy you and it doesn't care about you and you're going to end up, you know, a drug addict and like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I like, I don't think that's unfair a lot of the time. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. I think, yes, like these industries are exceptionally exploitative and uh, bad in a lot of ways. But something that I appreciate about Perfect Blue is, yes, Mima is exploited. But it doesn't go as far as to condemn, like, the industry as a whole. And I, like, I think the best example of that is, and we're going to start to get into some of the, like, grosser aspects oh. that we talked about in our content warning earlier. I wonder if I, I wonder if I know where you're going with this. And I was surprised. Yeah. It's one of the earliest things that happens with Mima on this like prestige drama that she's been cast in, which is called Double Bind. She initially is cast in a pretty small role and her agent kind of tries to talk to the like writer and producer of this show and say like, hey, can we get her a bigger part? Yada yada. She she has two agents. So there's the the woman Rumi, who is a little more protective of her, and then Tata Koro, who is more uh, ambitious, right? He He's, you know, trying to yes. get her bigger roles. Yes. And they are initially, the, the double bind people are initially kind of hesitant because they're like, well, she's an idol. And if people aren't super familiar with the idol industry in Japan, it's it's a lot like you were saying earlier, Sarah, about being kind of analogous to like Disney stars and stuff like that, where it's like you're kind of expected to have this like pure image and uh, stuff like that. I, I also think it's really interesting uh, to tangent a little bit into the idol stuff. I think it's really interesting that that is the career she's transitioning away from in this movie, given the time period in which it's set. Because, and I could be totally wrong here, I'm not like an expert on like Japanese pop culture history or anything, but I think idols were really big in like the 80s and in like the mid 90s, like it started to like dip a little bit. And like idols are still a thing and they're still popular. But I think, like, they were a much bigger thing and have kind of transitioned into being, like, more of, like, a gimmicky, like, thing that is not necessarily seen 
in quite the same way as it used to be. Mm. In in the same way that like anime in like the nineties and early two thousands, uh, you'd get like a lot of like characters being voiced by people who were also like idol singers and then they would put out like drama cds and like characters would have image songs that were sung by their voice actor and like stuff like that and like that's not really very common anymore Hmm. so uh, i think it's interesting that this is a career that meme is trying to get out of in the late 90s and contrast that with rumi who we eventually learn was an idol in her younger days and is like desperate to get back to that. Presumably, Rumi was an idol during this big idol boom in like the 80s, right? And when it was like a real, like serious career, more so than it maybe was for Nima. Um, again, I might be super wrong. I'm basing a lot of that off of like half remembered episodes of a Gundam podcast that I like that like talked <laughs> a lot about the, uh, the singers of some of the opening themes to different Gundam shows in the 80s. So I might be wrong, um, but I had that in mind while I was watching this time. I wonder if idols have come back, if they've circled back around to like big mainstream popularity. And I only say that because in Jujutsu Kaisen, uh, there is a, you know, burly macho man character who I think is a little bit problematic uh, because he is all about the young, cute idol, like, obsessively about the young cute idol that he likes just as like a side aspect of his character yeah they're definitely still a thing and i see them pop up in anime fairly frequently so i'm not super sure where they're at right now there's a there's an idol character in uh my favorite gundam show oh i should know what that is (laughs) yeah build fighters okay yeah cool yeah uh at any rate so Getting back to the double bind stuff in Perfect Blue. Right. We were talking about how the whole industry is not condemned and there's maybe an example of that. Yeah. So one of the first things that the writer comes up with for Mima's character in order to expand her role is to give this character a traumatic backstory where she is raped multiple times at a strip club. As one of the performers. And it's handled in a very interesting way, I think, because Rumi is very, very against it. Mm -hmm. And Tarokoro is kind of pushing for it. I don't think he's terrible about pushing for it but he is certainly in the camp of like you should do this it would be good for your career this is the right call for you right now but i think he also recognizes the um kind of sleaziness of it i that's that's one of the aspects that i where i think that nuance comes through Mm -hmm. is i feel like tadakoro up until the scene is filmed is like yeah just do it like whatever it's going to be good for your career and stuff once it starts he's clearly extremely uncomfortable and afterwards when she gets in the car like he definitely like regrets his role in pushing her to do it and like kind of uh he doesn't say it directly but he's like you know 
well, I'm going to go, like, let's go out. I'm going to buy you a big dinner. Like, yeah. he clearly feels bad that he played a role in kind of pressuring her into doing this thing that he maybe didn't understand or just didn't think about carefully enough yeah. to realize that it would be traumatizing. And I, my cynical brain, when she got in that car and he, like, kind of looked at her, I think maybe in the rearview mirror, mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, no, he better not have found that appealing and is now going to actually rape her. Thankfully, that didn't happen, and I was very relieved. Yeah, there's also a great moment in terms of showing, you know, that interesting kind of dichotomy um, in the scene itself, which is, like, horrible. Um, Even viewing it in the context of the show where you, or, like, in the context of it being a scene that's being filmed and you know that it's not happening in story, it's still really, like, awful. It's intense. It is a, um, it's a rather graphic scene. And, like, yes, you you know it's fake, but it, like, the energy is there, right? Yes. But there's a really great moment where they have to stop the take so that they can reposition a camera. And the guy playing like her main assaulter is like on top of her like holding her down because they have to stay completely still while they move the camera so that they can you know edit it together seamlessly and he is just like i'm really sorry (laughs) about that like yeah this sucks (laughs) and she's just like no it's fine like you're just doing your job and he's like I know, but like I, I feel bad about this, right? Because at that point, she's like her shirt's ripped off. Um, mm-hmm. She's like leaning over the edge of the stage. He is right on top of her, and again, my brain was like, "He's going to take advantage of the situation, and no one is going to notice." And he didn't. And I'm like, "Okay, all right." <laughs> yeah, I, I, I appreciate like at the very least, the writer is like a skeezy gross guy who is like writing it for titillation so like it is and there are these industry forces like pushing her to do it even though she's not really comfortable with it like she's telling everybody that she is but she's clearly not yeah and so it is pointing out like hey like this is a flawed industry it's where it's very easy to take advantage of people in this way but at the same time it's like that doesn't mean everybody in this industry is like a monster and a problem. Like, you know, this other actor is just a guy doing a job, like that kind of stuff. I, I think it's really nice that it balances that. Mm-hmm. The um the writer, it was established pretty early on that he's writing it as he goes. Like this is not mm-hmm. this is not a scene that was important to the script for like his vision of the series he's just winging it in some ways and it's so telling that to use this new young actress and to try and like shape her image the first thing that comes to his mind is a rape scene that'll do it yeah Mm -hmm. great like that is you couldn't think of anything else for her yeah yeah and that writer's name jj is it, that that was a joke about Lost. To be clear, okay. that was a uh, that was a joke about J.J. Abrams 
dumb obsession with mystery boxes and making shit up as he goes along and not actually having satisfying answers in mind. Okay, not about the rape stuff. No, not about the rape stuff. Okay, I was like, dang, that was a a shot at J.J. (laughs) Also, yes, I know J.J. Abrams was just a producer on Lost and the writers were Damon Lindelof and that other guy whose name I don't remember. Shut up. Yeah, everyone knows that. Uh, So yeah, so that that scene, though, I, I need to know... Because I've only seen this movie once, and I was trying to pay attention to all the details, but I didn't even know which things I was supposed to be paying attention to. We see Rumi, who is watching the scene be filmed alongside uh, Tadakoro. We see her leave the room crying. She is deeply affected by watching her, you know, her charge be fake raped. Is this the moment where she, like, fractures or do you think that, or do you think she's already had that, um, like, alternate personality? I think it was already there. I, because even prior to this, she's running Mima's room. And I think by implication is maybe already stringing along Mimania, because Mimania has already sent the letter that explodes and injures Tadakoro. Right. Which he wouldn't have done before that influence because he wouldn't have wanted to hurt her, Mima. Yes, yeah, because he becomes convinced that she's not the real her or whatever. Yeah. For anyone who has not watched this movie, (laughs) it's going to be confusing. And while watching the movie, it's going to be confusing. So, (laughs) Yeah, so that's... That's... One of the things that I find so interesting about it, it's almost sort of David Lynch, uh, like Lynchian, I guess, in terms of how this like weird narrative is presented, right? I mean, if you compare it to something like Mulholland Drive or something uh, that, that Lynch has done, it's never entirely clear past a certain point i mean the first act of the movie is pretty straightforward but at a certain point you start to have to wonder what's actually happening and what is mima hallucinating because she's having a psychotic break and stuff like that there are various instances where she sees herself in her old cham outfit kind of mocking her and being like well, I'm going to go back to the band because that's where I belong and stuff like that. And I feel like this is relevant for the ending. She also will like float away and hop along streetlights and stuff and like this cutesy pose with her hands behind her back. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's not real, right? Like, right. She's not real for now. Right. But there are weird moments where there's like a concert that she has apparently agreed to appear in as like a little reunion now that she's like been an actress for a little while or whatever. And it's very like fully ado, right? Where I'm probably saying that wrong, but uh, where she has that hallucination of the, you know, her, the, the fake her being the one to go out on stage and at the same time, Me Mania is 
hallucinating this like angelic perfect version of her and it's it's very weird and trippy and And confusing yeah because they don't there's no lead up to that it's just suddenly like she's apparently supposed to be at this thing and at the same time we have a scene of her former bandmates talking about her doing a photo shoot that ends up being pretty like explicit as well mm-hmm. well that that actually does happen right right yes the, yeah that is the thing that happens like i'm i'm convinced she didn't actually go on stage with those two yeah the way that it's cut i think is very confusing uh intentionally so about whether or not she does and whether the thing that she's referring to in terms of like she's like hiding in a bathroom being like i don't want to go do this and even that i think given its placement among these other scenes is kind of vague as to whether or not she's referring to going out on stage and like revisiting this idol element of her life or going to this photo shoot where the photographer is apparently like well known for getting women to take their clothes off mm-hmm. because like the the scene immediately preceding her being like I don't want to I don't want to go do this is the scene of her two former bandmates talking about her agreeing to do this photo shoot and the people who are trying to get her out of the bathroom are similarly vague about like come on like you said you would do it you can't back out now or whatever yeah and i i i thought that was leading up to the photo shoot and I say I thought because it is awfully confusing. I'm not even convinced that she was actually invited on stage. I don't think she was. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> I, yes. I think her like paranoia uh, old version of herself is just like, I'm going to go sing with your old buddies and that's where I belong. And here you are in this sleazy photo shoot. Like mm-hmm. maybe some aspect of her trying to like not commit to what she's about to do yeah except that aspect floats off and has a great time without her <laughs> right and me mania super enjoys it yeah there's a lot of shared delusion throughout this movie mm-hmm. <laughs> makes it hard to tell like who is actually uh having the breakdown at this current moment yeah there's a great scene that is like such a fuck you it's such a cheap trick because it's no there's no other scene like it in the movie where it's just fully a lie and like not even like a thing that someone is hallucinating or anything but there is a scene so ultimately her character in double bind is revealed to be the killer that the whole show is about these two agents tracking down or whatever and it turns out that she snapped after this traumatic experience and she has this second personality that is like based on her dead sister or something like that and etc etc so there's this scene that we see of double bind where the actress playing the main character of that show like the the lead detective or whatever is giving this breakdown of like that 
that uh, resolution to that character, right? She's explaining, you know, this tragic thing happened to her and it caused her to snap and develop this secondary personality and that was the murderer or whatever. And this is at a point in the story in Perfect Blue where several people have been murdered that are connected to Mima in various ways. And specifically people responsible for traumatizing Mima because so far it's been the writer of Double Bind and the photographer. Yep. So we get this scene of Double Bind, except immediately before that scene, we get the exact same scene, except it's the actress saying her real name is Mima Kirakoi or whatever. She was an idol, and then this thing happened, and she snapped, and she's convinced herself that she's an actress and all this stuff. Like, yeah. it, <laughs> it just totally plays it out as, like, this is, like, the twist towards the end of the movie that all of this has been in her head the whole time. It, it really makes you think that. Is she wearing a physician's coat when she first says that? I believe so. Yeah, it makes it seem like, it makes it seem like Mima has taken the people around her, Ari, uh, her co-star, and basically put them into the events of this movie, but that co-star is really like a physician who's been watching her, but not because it really is what's been going on in the movie. It was, yeah, that scene. Yeah. Why? <laughs> it's right. It's such a fuck you because the movie never does that at any other point. <laughs> um, and there's no, like, it's not like Mima is hallucinating that happening. Like, it's just, it's just a little like fake clip that doesn't, have any bearing on the story other than to make you go, wait, what the fuck for five seconds? Yeah. But there are these other interesting moments of like delusion, like when the photographer is killed, we see Mima performing that murder. But I think the implication by the end of the film is that that was Rumi killing that guy, mm -hmm. and she sees herself as Mima. And so that's the perception that we have on that scene. Yeah. Which I think is super interesting. But it it also feels like she's trying to frame real Mima. Oh, she's definitely trying to frame real Mima, because when real Mima wakes up in her apartment, she finds the bloody clothes. Yeah, and there's... There are things that Rumi is doing behind the scenes through Me Mania because he's operating the site that there's her daily diary, um, posing as Mima, writing about her day with freakishly accurate detail. And one of the things that he writes, presumably through Rumi, is that she loves to go shopping and went and like went shopping today to get new clothing and stuff, can't resist a deal or whatever. And she finds, like, that shopping bag. So she's reading these well, things on the site. I think it's flipped. I think Rumi is the one who is running Mima's room and writing all of the diary entries. Because she's also, like, emailing Mimania as Rumi, or I mean, as Mima, and saying, like, see, like, you know that I'm the real Mima because I'm writing all of these diary entries or whatever what? you need to do these things for me i'm not sure i i'm not sure i believe that <laughs> now i'm confused what if this is all a delusion <laughs> <laughs> i i i my take was that 
Me Mania was originally running uh, Mima's room. Like he did that as a creepy stalker. And Rumi started influencing him with those emails. But maybe that's not what happened. <laughs> I I would have to watch it again. But I, I interpreted it the other way. Because Rumi also has like an exact replica of Mima's apartment and stuff. Yes. <laughs> we see that toward the end. And I'm like, what? It took me... Uh, it took me... I think until the chase scene ended to be like, oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> the end of that chase scene is so fucked. Yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> so regardless of who's pulling the strings on that site, she is reading things that make her believe that's what she's been doing. Because mm-hmm. like the site kind of becomes her reality. And so finding that bag of bloody clothing with the like the branding of where she allegedly went shopping really makes it look like she is guilty yes and as we mentioned like all the people dying are people like directly connected to her Mm -hmm. and that she would have reason to want to injure or kill i felt really bad also uh towards the very end Because we're most of the way there now. Uh, Like, after the photographer is when she really starts to sort of freak out and eventually wakes up in the creepy fake version of her apartment that Rumi has staged and all that stuff. But uh, I guess right before that, before, after she leaves her apartment thinking that she's maybe killed the photographer... They go to like a rap party for Double Bind or something like that. Yep. And she gets attacked by Mimania and hammers him to death, which is uh, great. <laughs> Satisfying. Yeah, that scene was also disturbing because it it reuses the setup of the fake rape scene with like the stage elements and the positioning. And it's just it's really tense. Like you aren't sure that she's going to come out of it. Right. But that hammer hit was great. Yes. But I felt super bad because eventually she meets up with Rumi, who she doesn't know is part of it, and they leave. And we get a little panning shot that shows that Mr. Tadakoro has been killed and somebody else. I don't remember who. Um, there are two bodies, but I don't remember who the second one is. I felt so- Oh, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. But I feel so bad. I liked Tadakoro. <laughs> He wasn't perfect, but he was, like, a pretty good dude overall. Well, so that is... That scene confuses me, because I thought Tadakoro leaves in a car ahead of of Rumi. Like, Rumi's about to follow, but then she's looking for Mima. Like, the very next scene. I don't... Yeah. I don't remember. And it doesn't show how Uh, or why he dies. It was really, like... Well... he's dead, too. He's... His eyes are gouged out, which is how the photographer gets killed. So I, I actually, I think the writer guy has his eyes gouged out as well. Mm. Um, so it's definitely supposed to be Mimania or Rumi killed him, but it's a uh, poor guy. Yeah. He didn't deserve that. He didn't even get an on-screen death. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that pretty much 
leads into the climax where Mima wakes up and she seems to be in her apartment, but then she realizes that all of the fish are like plastic and that it's it's not really her apartment. And then Rumi comes in and is like, I'm the real you. Yeah, because it's it's like pre the events of the movie. She still has her cham poster up in Rumi's uh-huh. version of it. And her fish are supposed to be dead because they were poisoned by someone and these fish look alive. And yeah. Yeah. But the ending, like, I was so confused on what was real at the very end. Yeah, because the end is, I, I love the, I love the effect of we see Rumi chasing Mima. But they're running alongside a building that has these like big glass windows and Rumi's reflection is like creepy jumping Mima <laughs> that we've seen hallucinated all this time. The other way oh, around. Oh, it's flipped. Yeah. You're right. It's flipped. And yes. that was hilarious to me <laughs> because you have, yeah, you have like this floaty fake ethereal version of Mima chasing after real Mima. So it's ambiguous if this is like actually happening or if she's freaking out and Rumi's still in her room and then yeah running by the the building with the reflection is so comical because well first of all Rumi's expression is like manic yeah and she is clearly like booking it the the contrast yeah the contrast between the like ethereal like like hallucinatory Mima is like not even like moving really like she's like skipping along like floating and stuff and then yeah Rumi who is like much older than I mean not much older but probably like 20 years or so yeah 10 to 20 years um older than Mima and is like not in the best shape so she's just like running like inelegantly yeah it's (laughs) it's very kinetic (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> just... And like you said, the facial expression and all that. And uh, yeah, the the way it resolves where the window gets broken and Rumi has dropped something. I don't remember if it's her. Yeah, it's like a headband or something, right? It's it's part of the the outfit. It's the wig that she's. Oh, that's right. The wig. Yeah. Yeah. And she's so obsessed with being Mima that just without even really thinking, like, she leans over because she needs to get the wig back on, right? It's like, uh, it's like Michael Myers at the end of Halloween when Laurie pulls his mask off and he, like, is compelled to stop and pick up the mask, even though it's giving her time to, you know, rally or whatever, um, because that's like his identity at this point. So she leans over to pick up this wig and just leans right onto a giant, like, jagged shard of glass that just... blood everywhere. (laughs) Did she even notice? She seemed unfazed. No, yeah, I don't think so. Like, she starts... uh, (laughs) She starts trying to, like, chase again, but now she's lost, like half of her blood or whatever so she's just like stumbling and she stumbles into the street and is almost hit by a truck which is hearkening back 
much like all of the Mimania stuff in this last act is like calling back to the double bind stuff earlier. This whole thing of her like staggering out on the street and almost being hit by a truck is a thing that we saw happen to Mima earlier. Maybe, Maybe <laughs> like yeah. it may or may not have really happened to her, which, yeah, it's just it's very interesting. Ultimately, Mima, heart of gold, leaps in the way and gets Rumi out of, you know, like the brunt of the, the danger. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, I don't know, at that point, I think I would have just like blindly stood there just like, okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I would have. Uh, I don't think I would have done what Mima does, but I appreciate you know that about her as a character like it would be it would be weird right i mean up to like until she's revealed as a murderer with like a creepy obsession and obvious like mental problems mima and rumi are like pretty close like she she clearly has a lot of respect for Rumi as her like agent and stuff. And Rumi helps her out in a lot of ways early on in the film. And they clearly have a really good relationship. <laughs> and with all of the stuff that Mima has been going through in terms of like her own, you know, mental health struggles, like, I don't know. I, I can see where she would not, necessarily uh condemn Rumi in that moment i would (laughs) to be clear well to be fair she's only had a few minutes of intense panic to process that Rumi is even behind this right because it goes from right you know wake up start running for your life to jumping to protect Rumi. like right she didn't even have time to grab a brush or put a little makeup I feel like I understand that. Uh, <laughs> yes. What song is that? Every morning when I wake up? Uh, no, it's just Wake Up. Wake Up. Uh, it's, uh, I, I don't know the name of the song, but it's, uh, oh, you know, I don't no, think you trust gotcha. in my Different self-righteous song. suicide. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. My first thought went to the much nicer song. <laughs> <laughs> um... Well, now all I'm thinking of is uh, Gotta Get Up by Harry Nilsson from uh, Russian Doll. <laughs> oh, yeah. Man, Russian Doll is so good. I kind of want to... Well, season one is good. Season two, uh, I want to rewatch that. <laughs> yeah, that'd be a fun thing to talk about sometime. That's yeah. a fun show. Anime. <laughs> yeah, back to the anime trope of being hit by a truck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Was that even a popular trope at that point? <laughs> Rumi could have gone to another world and could have been like a pop idol. <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't that be a great I'm just, I'm, just ima- <laughs> I'm just imagining like a real like terrible road accident and someone on the sidelines being like cliche <laughs> like, yeah but no, but no that time I got it. reincarnated as a slime did it better <laughs> <laughs> well you know how you know how these isekai uh shows have like the super long titles now just yes because imagine like i took over the identity of my of my <laughs> yeah. uh kohai and <laughs> got hit by a truck and reincarnated as the pop idol i always wanted to be 
See, that's in, instead of Perfect Blue, they should have called it like, uh oh, my manager can't stand the idea of me acting. <laughs> um, but then we get like a nice little epilogue where Rumi is in like an asylum, essentially. And Mima apparently still like visits her semi regularly to just kind of see how she's doing. And the doctor says something to the effect of like, she's gotten like a little better in the years or whatever that she's been here. Like she comes out of it sometimes, Mm -hmm. but most of the time she still thinks she's Mima. Yeah. And, uh, then as Mima is leaving, some of the nurses are like, Oh, that looks like that big star, you know, Mima Kiragoe or whatever, but surely it can't be her. Why would she ever come here? And Mima gets in her car and says, like, it's really me or something like that. And then we get like a nice upbeat tune over the credits. Yeah. And she looks she looks healthy and like a well-adjusted adult. You know, her hair's grown out. She's got cool shades. I'm just like, thank goodness. <laughs> yeah. And I I it's again like one of those, I mean, surface level, it's just showing that, like, hey, like, after all this bad stuff she went through, she she made it, right? Like, she got to fulfill her dream of becoming an actor, and she's successful, and, you know, she's moved past this trauma as well as she can. I don't know, it's just, again, another one of those subtle aspects of this movie's interpretation of like the industry right because she has of she does all of these you know things the photo shoot and like the skeezy scene and all that stuff like early on in her career and it's i don't it's just interesting to me that so much of the movie is about like the negative aspects of getting into the industry and then Ultimately, it is like, well, like it did lead to a successful career. <laughs> yeah. Which like I don't I don't think the I don't think the movie is making a value judgment on that, right? Like I don't think it's saying like, see, all of this trauma was worth it or <laughs> no. anything like that. But um I don't know. Like I think it's I think it's interesting and I I don't necessarily think that this was intended, but you know, death of the author and all of that stuff. I think it's interesting that you could interpret it as saying, like, ultimately, like, these were good career moves for her. Because it is implied that Double Bind, at least, is, like, very successful. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, she ended up being such a major character. The the murderer. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, But, yeah, I, I definitely interpret it as, like, they relented enough to give her a happy ending. Yes. I think that was the intent, but for sure. But I, I do agree. You could kind of misinterpret, like, oh, okay, so everything worked out, <laughs> right? I also, as a minor side note, I I like her co-star or like uh, Aerie or whatever yeah. the, the actress. I I think it's nice that like they make it clear that like she's like a really big star and. She has like two scenes of interacting with Mima, like outside of the context of Double Bind, and they're both really short. And I don't know, I just 
I like that they didn't do the easy thing of like, well, of course, like the super famous megastars are like snooty or whatever. She just seems like such a normal person. Um, yeah. Like, she gets kind of annoyed with Mima when Mima keeps messing up this one specific take uh, at a certain point. But also, like, early on, like, she's encouraging to her. And, like, at the rap party, she's just like, hey, yeah, like, see you later. Like, this was fun or whatever. <laughs> like, she just seems like such a, like, normal person which i appreciate yeah airy was a cool character what you know little we got to see of her yeah and she survived that's cool yeah <laughs> but yeah what a what a trip yeah i uh i appreciate you watching it uh i know it's was pretty weird and maybe outside the norm of what you would want to relax with on a you know, on a movie night. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> yeah. Next, we gotta talk about Paranoia Agent, because that's a... That's a real fucking trip. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> are we are we <laughs> gonna do his uh, filmography in order? I'd be down for that. That'd be cool. Yeah, I think that would be fun. Every so often, not, like, one after the right, other. Right, <laughs> yeah. Not gonna shotgun him, but... I I really like Paranoia Agent. It's It's in that cadre of, like, weird ass anime that just deeply appeals to me as a super weird person serial experiments lane is also on that list but i think paranoia agent is really interesting we were talking a little bit before we started recording i was talking about persona 5 and oh yeah how it is really targeted at like hey like, uh, surface level, it is a pretty basic, like, teenage rebellion story, but it is pretty targeted at, like, hey, like, Japanese culture specifically is, like, really bad at, like, these particular things, and that's worth examining. And Paranoia Agent is very much in that vein, too, of, like, hey, like, there is... There's one specific thing that Satoshi Kon really does not like about Japanese culture, and that's pretty much what Paranoia Agent is about. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and it's short. It's like 12 episodes or something. It's not super long. It's like the perfect anime length, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, and it's it's super, super bizarre, and it's got some Eldritch Horror stuff, which I'm always a fan of. Of course, yeah. But now... You listen to a really long audiobook. <laughs> yeah. That's the trade-off. <laughs> I'm down. I'm also going to make you... I keep I keep bringing this up in our conversations. I'm going to get it in an episode now, um, unless it gets edited out. But we got to watch Lake Mungo. Yes, you've, you've mentioned that. We can do that yeah. next. Lake Mungo is so fucking weird. Oh, boy. Um, I guess it... Like, it's a horror movie, but it's not in any way scary, except that I find it terrifying. <laughs> is is that the one with the guy with the box of fingers? Or is that, <laughs> or is that something different? <laughs> no, that's... <laughs> that's Gerald's game. Shh. Okay. <laughs> that was close. <laughs> you know, there's too many... <laughs> Uh, Lake Mungo, I'm going to kind of tease it a little bit. Lake Mungo is 
a documentary. I mean, it's it's not real, so I guess you would call it like a mockumentary, but is a documentary style film uh, about a family in New Zealand whose daughter drowns, mm. and it is about the family in the aftermath of that loss, and there are possibly some supernatural events happening to this family. So the documentary is about cataloging these supernatural events and about sort of generally examining how this death affects the family and their community. So being that it is like a documentary style thing and like full on, like it is presented as though it were a documentary, like not a found footage, like it's not Blair Witch, it's not Paranormal Activity, like it's shot as though it were just a straight up documentary with talking head segments and all that stuff. So, like, it's not, like, scary, because it's presented as though it were something that you would watch, like, on the news, right? Like, the local news. Right. But there are elements of it that really fuck me up <laughs> that I want to talk about. Well, I, um, I will watch it, and uh, I'm sure the family is totally, you know, totally recovering in a healthy way from this. Grief <laughs> loss that they've experienced and uh... uh but yeah we'll we'll have to watch that sometime i won't force you to watch another weird <laughs> trippy existential movie um immediately but uh next time i can pull the like let's watch this card um it's gonna be like mongo all right sounds good i'll survive hopefully <laughs> i do like new zealand it's pretty have you watched Xena, Warrior Princess? I've seen an episode or two. Is it? Yeah. Well, it's also filmed in New Zealand. And it's great. Oh! And we should do some episodes on that. I love Xena. We should. We should swap our uh, beloved 90s uh, girl power television shows. Buffy? I can, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can watch some Xena and you can watch some Buffy. That sounds good. Yeah. That'd be great palette cleanser from yeah 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 that would be fun and it's it's also like vaguely gay subtext up until like the very end and then it's like i think you're just like full-on embracing gayness (laughs) oh man there's so there's uh there's a gay couple in buffy and it was uh, I think it was like one of the first like lesbian kisses on screen Whoa. Um, in like American broadcast or whatever. But at any rate, there's a musical episode, which fucking rocks, by the way. I have the soundtrack on vinyl. Um, but <laughs> there's, there's a musical episode that has a song sung by one of the women in this couple. And it is astounding that it got to air on television (laughs) it's like it's all double entendre like it is like the horniest song i've ever heard (laughs) that's impressive because yeah music (laughs) it's wild okay can i just like watch this out of context uh yeah 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 the only thing you need to know is that 
The woman singing is named Tara, and her partner is named Willow. Which is only important because one of the lines is, here in ecstasy, spread beneath my willow tree. <laughs> so... <laughs> love it is willow the is willow one of the like main reoccurring sidekicks that becomes how i met your mother lady yep allison hannigan yeah okay all right deal we have it on air recorded And I've heard nothing but good things about Paprika and Tokyo Godfathers. Paprika? Paprika? (laughs) I I pronounce the movie Paprika. I haven't watched it. I assume they probably say it properly in the movie itself. But I say it that way to distinguish it from the delicious spice. Oh, yeah. I regularly (laughs) watch my spices. (laughs) 